Good evening. Psalm 51, if you have your Bibles, that's where we are in our study of David. We've talked about his rise, his fall, and last week we began talking about his restoration. We stopped, if you recall, at verse number 9. Those are what my notes say, unless yours says different. Nope, verse 9 is where we stopped. We pick up this evening at verse number 10. We work our way to the end of the chapter. We were in the midst of hearing David plead to God for a variety of things. He began asking God to be gracious to him. He talked about uh, God washing him thoroughly, cleansing him. He's used that expression multiple times. He wants his transgression forgiven. He acknowledges his sin and a host of other things. Verse number 7, purify me with hyssop, clean me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We pick up then in verse number 10 down to verse number 13. One thought, really, and that's David's desire for restoration. David is going to make promises to God in the midst of this. The second part he pleads and pleads, but then he pledges. He's going to promise God some things, too, as his portion in the relationship. Verse number 10 begins with the plea, Create in me a clean heart, O God. This word create is the one used in Genesis 1-1. the Hebrew word bara, and he is asking God to do that. Create in me a clean, a pure heart. He'll use the expression inner man, and so the Bible has so much to say about what our inner man thinks and feels and behaves and does. David is not asking God for a miracle. He's not asking God to do something for him he's not responsible for. What will it take for David to have a clean heart? Forgiveness. He's asking David, or God is asking David for forgiveness. He does it here in a host of other places. The way it works is if David will repent, God will forgive. He'll be cleansed. He'll be washed. He says over and over again, I acknowledge it. It's my sin. It's ever before me. And Samuel said, the Lord, or Nathan rather, the Lord has taken away your sin, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. He's pled, purify me with hyssop, clean me, I shall be whiter than snow, hide your face from my iniquities, blot out my transgression, and then here, create in me a clean heart, O God. And then he says, renew within me a steadfast spirit, an established, firm, stable spirit. The clean heart will come from repentance. The right heart, the steadfast, the firm, fable, stable spirit will come from forgiveness, trusting God has forgiven. It's again more of the request with the same emphasis, restoration, reconciliation, reunion with God. David continues in verse number 11, the first part, do not cast me away from your presence. A life of sin destroys communion with God. And God had told his people, if you go into sin, then I will cast you away. He said it back in Deuteronomy 29, 26 to 28, 2 Chronicles 7, 17 to 22. And it seems that David is asking, don't let that happen to me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't sever the relationship. Don't end what we have. Allow me back. He continues the second part of verse number 11. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
David is not probably often talked about enough in the fact that David is a prophet. And the Holy Spirit would have been given to David to prophesy. In 2 Samuel 23 and verse number 2, David says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. It's important for you to understand with reference to the Holy Spirit that if anybody speaks by inspiration, the Holy Spirit is the one doing that. It doesn't matter which testament you're in. If a prophet spoke in the Old Testament, it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophet. A prophet spoke in the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophet. David is a prophet. Listen to what the apostles say in Acts chapter 2. Part of their sermon, the first gospel sermon, they say that. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 25, coincidentally, this is right after quoting the prophet Joel. It's interesting, I would have no problem saying the prophet Joel. It's not very often we say the prophet David, but they did. Verse 25, Peter and the other apostles say, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. King James, see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And because in the psalm, David uses the first person words like I and me and my, it was apparently thought that David was talking about himself. And what the apostles are saying is, listen, David did make the prophecy, yes, but David was not talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. Their explanation begins in verse 29, where they say, Brethren, I may confidently say for you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us today. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was never abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh did see corruption or decay. This Jesus God has raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. What must it have been like to be a prophet of God? What must it have been like to know you were speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit? David had such an experience, and here David pleads, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Could it happen? Well, absolutely it could happen. The Spirit came upon David when he was anointed, 1 Samuel 16, 13. The Spirit was taken from Saul when he was rejected, 1, Kings, 1 Samuel 16, 14. What David is pleading is, don't do that to me. It would again be one more way of rejection, and so far as David sees it, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He continues in verse number 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Interesting way of wording it. He doesn't say restore to me my joy of salvation. It's hard to restore something you didn't once have, and so David had this. Whatever he seeks to have restored, he once had it. Well, what was it that he had? He had the joy of God's salvation. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation, a returning to one's place of residence where one sits. That's what the word restore means. What do you want restored? What do you want returned, David? The joy of your salvation. It's this request that may highlight the problem that began this whole ordeal. Maybe it was a lack of appreciation of God's salvation that had David walk out on the roof and look at the woman. Maybe David had taken God's salvation for granted. Maybe he had had it so long it had become common. Maybe no longer, the longer one is saved, the more tempting it is to forget the joy you had when it was new. And maybe that's why the warnings abound in Scripture. Warnings like Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 to 12 you're going to have lands which you didn't plant, vineyards and olive trees and wells you didn't dig and houses you didn't build. And then beware lest when you become full, you forget the Lord. Maybe it's fullness. Maybe you can hear it in the Hebrews writer's exhortation in Hebrews 2. Let us give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we let them slip, leak out like a pot with holes, just slowly leak away from us. Do you have the joy of God's salvation still? Do you remember what it was like to be lost? Have you been so saved so long you've forgotten what it was like? Do you remember what it was like when you learned you were on your way to hell? Somebody studied the Bible with you. You didn't know previously. You came to know in the studies, and at some point, the light went off, and you realized, I am on my way to be lost and estranged from God. And you said, I want that salvation. It didn't matter what time of the day or night it was. What you said is, I'm ready. And you went down, and you obeyed the gospel. You remember the joy of God's salvation. I suppose it's possible that you could be saved from your sins so long that you forget. David says, restore it to me. Let me remember again the joy of your salvation. He says at the end of verse 12, maybe the same thought connected, certainly sustain within me a willing spirit. God gives the grace. We get the peace and the joy. But the willing spirit well, that's ours. The joy of his salvation, yes, a willing spirit on my behalf. John talks about it maybe similarly in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons or children of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Everyone who enjoys the joy of his salvation has the willing spirit. Restore that to me. Once restored, verse 13 down to verse 15, David shifts from pleading to pledging. 
David begins to talk about what he's willing to do. Now, he has asked of God and asked of God and asked of God. In fact, from the very opening words in the psalm, he's asking, be gracious to me, have mercy on me, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, over and over and over again. He gets to this point, though. God, if you're willing to do all of this for me, I'll do some things for you. He says, be gracious, blot out, wash me, cleanse me, purify me. He says, wash me again, make me to hear joy, hide not your face, blot out my transgressions, create in me, renew in me, do not cast me away, do not take your spirit, restore to me the joy, sustain me. And verse 13 opens with the word, then. What will I do? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I will teach transgressors your ways. The ways of the Lord, another interesting study and certainly one worthy of our investigation. What are the ways of the Lord? Best I can ascertain, these two things are, are, are at the very least involved, and one of them is whosoever will let him come. There is an equality with God. It does not matter what a person is or what they've done. God is willing to have the relationship. That's the way of the Lord. Anybody can come to God. But you don't know what he did. You remember in Acts chapter 9 when, on the one hand, Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus to tell him what he needed to do, and on the other hand, God appeared to Ananias and said, go to him. Do you remember what Ananias said? I've heard about him. Lord, you can't be right on this one because this guy, you know, Ananias wasn't speaking for the Lord. The Lord's way wasn't Ananias' way. The Lord's way is whosoever will let him come. This man receives sinners, Luke 15, 1 and 2. The second way of the Lord is just this psalm. It's reconciliation. Any child of God can come back to God. Sometimes, even within the body, you might hear people say, but you don't know what they did. But you don't know the harm they've caused. But you don't know the matter of lie. Can you imagine what would have been said in Israel about the king? Can you imagine the scuttlebutt around the nation about the king and what he had done? Can you imagine the water cooler talk and what was going on in the nation about what David the king did? Should he be allowed to be king again? Should he return? And Absalom is going to run him out of the city. He's not even going to be there anymore. Maybe there was cheering. There was one man who met him and cursed him. God's ways. Whosoever will, let him come. And any child of God can be reconciled. It might be the case that even as you and I sit here this evening, there is a preacher somewhere who had a rise and a fall. Boy, it'd be great if he'd come home to be reconciled to God. There's an elder maybe somewhere, a deacon somewhere, a sister, a brother, former deacons, former elders. Pray their story doesn't end at the rise and the fall. I hope that their end will be like David. Peter denied Jesus, and Jesus said, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. When he rose, he told the ladies and tell Peter. 
Saul of Tarsus says of himself, then the apostle Paul, who was before a blasphemer and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of God was given unto me. He says that in me first, Christ Jesus might show forth an example to all those who would hereafter believe. What's the example? Well, if God is willing to forgive Saul of Tarsus, he'll forgive you. But you don't know what I've done. Frankly, I don't need to know. God does. And it's God's the one who will reconcile you if you'll come back. David was restored, and you can be. You remember the things that David did, don't you? Adultery, drunkenness, lying, murder, betrayal. David went from giant slayer to saint slain, but he rose again from man on the rise to man down. But now he would rise again by the grace and mercy of God. You know what David said? If you'll do this for me, note the last part of verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. I hope I'm not reading too much into that verse to make a, distinguish, a distinction between the transgressors and the sinners. Maybe it would fit, though, for our purposes, certainly, that maybe the transgressors are internal and the sinners are external. Either way, I'll teach them your way. Sinners will be converted. God will have you back. Who better to tell sinners the good news than former sinners? Who better to help a fallen saint stand again than one who has fallen and risen? David, the one who rose, fell, the one who will rise again, now willing to share the good news with somebody else that God will have you back. If you'll have me, I'll tell them. I will tell, teach, transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted. Verse number 14, David returns to his pleas to God, deliver me from blood guiltiness. O oh God, the God of my salvation. When I first read that verse, I thought David was asking God for protection. It, 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 originally, it went into my mind about the one who would slay somebody and then have to flee to the refuge city, and David was asking God to, to, to protect him from blood guiltiness. But I don't think that's right. I think rather what David is asking is, deliver me from the blood that I shed and the guilt that accompanies it. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. I'm the one who's guilty of shedding blood. You remember what he said back in verse 3? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I wonder how often he replayed it in his mind. I wonder how often he thought about what he had done. I, I wonder how painful it must have been to rehearse it over and over again, each excruciating detail from seeing her to murdering him and sacrificing others to get it done. Who alone can help you in this dynamic? Who alone can steal the mind? Who alone can provide the peace? He's talking to the only one who can. Deliver me from this guiltiness that I have. God is the only one who can help with that. God is the only one who can forgive, renew, restore. Who alone can deliver God the salvation of his Lord? David is asking, 
please deliver me from, I believe, his own guiltiness of shedding this blood. David then says in verse 14, the end of that verse, again, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. I hope that you can hear in this psalm the intimacy of the relationship that David has with his father, his God, this connectedness of you and me, and if you will, I will, and, and this idea of wanting to get close again and commune with again. This is not in a strange relationship. We sing a song. We sing a song also that has, and we have songs that have this dynamic that, 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 that the joy of singing of God's righteousness comes from our being free from the guilt and the shame of sin. When you have this and you understand it, then the songs that we sing are sweeter when the forgiveness is realized and had. Worship is different for those who are forgiven compared to those who never need it. I'm not saying you should go out and sin to need forgiveness so your worship will be sweet. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's almost something that's just inherent. When you are forgiven of your sins, you come close to God, and you have the privilege to sing. Boy, it's sweet to sing of His forgiveness. It's sweet to sing of His praises. In Luke chapter 7, there is a, 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 an event or an occasion when Jesus enters into somebody's house. His name is Simon. If you have your Bibles, look over there with me. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is explaining to Simon the difference between he, the Pharisee, and the woman whom he would deem a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water to, to wash my feet. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he says to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. Simon and that woman would have stood before people on two entirely different extremes. But that's kind of the point. Can you imagine when she sings of forgiveness, how much sweeter it is for her? You might be able to see it again in Luke 15 with the two brothers, the one who went away and the one who came back. Suppose you had a conversation with the both of them a month or two, six months later down the road. You got to talk to the younger son and you got to talk to the older son, and the subject was their father. You might very well hear in two entirely different messages, and now both the boys are home. One of them's been forgiven much. 
The one restored, feasted, and celebrated. The one who stayed home, stayed out. It's the rejoicing that happens after the restoration. We, we have a line that says, sweet is the song I'm singing today. Why is it sweet? I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. Trouble and sorrow have vanished away. I have been redeemed. Great is my joy. Now as onward I go, I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. Let me ask you a question. How's your singing? Have an opportunity every week, a couple times, to sing to God about his joy and his forgiveness. How do you do it? The gospel is good news because we have something to share with those who are still in sin. There's joy to be had because there's forgiveness that's been received. And it seems like David understands that now more than he may ever have. God will forgive. God will restore. God will renew. Who? You too. God can still use you. God won't cast you off. God will wash you and cleanse you. You can hear the joy again. At least that's what David is pleading for. You know, all of this psalm, you can kind of reach the fullness of it in verses 16 and 17 because David knows what it's going to take to restore this relationship. He says as much, for you do not delight, verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise or refuse. Sometimes you read words like these, you might be tempted to think the sacrifices weren't important then. Well, they were. In fact, they were required. But the sacrifices were never the delight. The sacrifices were actually never the point. And on occasion, when the heart and the life wasn't in harmony with God and his word and his will and his way, well, then the sacrifices were rejected. In fact, they were told, don't even bring them anymore. You'll want to read Isaiah chapter 1 in the first 15 verses to hear God actually say, who even required this of you? Your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, I, I, away with it. I will not even. I, 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 I don't want it. How do you get God to say, I don't want your sacrifices? Well, if your heart's not right. You see, that's what God always wanted. Please don't make the mistake of believing that the Old Testament was law and the New Testament is grace and the Old Testament was works and the New Testament is faith. It's just not true. You know what God wanted from his Old Testament people? He wanted their heart. He wanted their faith. It's Joshua 24 and verse 14 where you'll read the words, worship God or serve God in sincerity and truth. Jesus will say the same in John 4, 24, spirit and truth. That's your spirit. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, in sincerity and truth. How are you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? 
that's not spoken simply in the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, verse 5. God has always and only wanted the heart. It's a broken spirit. A contrite heart is what God wants. It's the broken spirit that understands that without God, I can do nothing, John 15, the first five verses. It's the spirit that says, as the deer pants after the water, so my soul longs after you, Psalm 42. It is a spirit that is sorry for sinning against God. It's one that mourns, Matthew 5, 3 through 5. A spirit that knows it cannot justify itself and is in desperate need of God's grace. The very one I've injured is the very one I need. It's a humble heart, free from pride, free from blame, free from excuse, free from ego, free from self. A heart that by word and deed acknowledges I have hit rock bottom. And the only way out of this is if God gives me his grace with no strength of its own to fix the problem, comes to God broken, admitting you are the only one who can mend me. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul, but it's only God who can do it. Why is this so important? Because it's possible to come to God without this heart. Oh, there's a myriad of ways you could come to God. You could come out of a sense of duty. Isaiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 7, he told me to, and therefore I'm here. I will check the list and hit the box. I'll cross the T. I'll dot the I. I hope he's satisfied. Since he wants it, I'll give it. You could come that way. You could come out of fear. I don't want to suggest that maybe that's not a right motivation to start. Certainly not one to sustain life. He'll punish me. I don't want that. If a person were to say, I'm going to obey the gospel because I don't want to go to hell, I would say, obey the gospel then. That's a good reason to obey the gospel. But when you come out of that water and you start living with God, you can't keep fearing him. There is no fear in love. Perfect love cast out fear. At some point, that fear should give rise to love, and you should move on in your relationship to God. But if you came that way, well, that's understandable. You could. You could come to God simply by doing him a favor. I are some people who believe I'm pretty good mostly. I've got this thing kind of down, but I'll join his team. I'll be on his side. You might want to see Luke 18, 9 to 14. That man seems to talk like that. But there's only one proper way to come, and it's this, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. One that admits sin, David did, acknowledges you have no other way out. There is a reason David is penning these words through inspiration. There's no other way out. Asking, pleading for help and deliverance, and then accepting God's goodness. I submit this to you, friends. When you read through the book of Acts, 
turn the diamond. Don't keep reading it the same way every time. Read it from different angles and different perspectives. Sometimes, yes, focus on the apostles. Absolutely. Hard to miss them. Peter, chapters 1 to 12, Paul 13 to 28. Hard to miss the apostles and all the good. Focus on the church. Absolutely. By all means, the church is started there. It's a pivotal and important chapter, Acts chapter 2. Some would say the most important in the Bible. It's significant. But do this also. Look at the people. Who is hearing this message, and how are they responding? I tell you, the first audience was full of murderers. And by the time they heard it, we are helpless and hopeless. Please, tell us what to do. Men and brethren, what shall we do? How can we possibly Get over this. There's blood on our hands. We've killed the Son of God. What can we do? Nothing. Of your own, nothing. What you can do is repent and be baptized. There's a reason about 3,000 of them did. Acts chapter 4, I know you did it through ignorance, as also your leaders. What do you do? Repent and convert. Acts chapter 6, 7, 8. Why is Stephen going to die for this? See, here's some water. Stop this chariot right now. There's some water right there. What's stopping me? There is, he fell down at their feet. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's what you're hearing. Broken, contrite, heart. David says, you won't despise that. You're right. It is a loss of this kind of heart that might lead one into sin in the first place. And it's a loss of this kind of heart that would not have one come back to be restored. There is a song that we sing that I think well subscribes or describes this heart. You probably know it too. Here are the words. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that came or that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. All of self and none of thee, all of self and none of thee. When I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee, yet he found me, I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree, and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Some of self and some of thee, some of self and some of thee. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. But day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Less of self and more of thee, less of self and more of thee, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee, none of self and all of thee. Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. You don't desire sacrifices. Sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. 
David resumes in verses 18 and 19, and he now moves on to living after this restoration. Restoration now, he says in verse 18, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering. The whole burnt offering, the young bulls will be offered on your altar. It's the right heart that leads to acceptable living, sacrifice, worship, and a walk with God. With a broken spirit and a contrite heart, he will. Verse number 18 and verse number 19, he will be gracious, have mercy, and purify. Make you hear the joy of his salvation, creating you a clean heart, restore the joy, sustain you, deliver you, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Acceptable sacrifice flows from a right spirit. David, whiter than snow, teaching others in transgressions, singing joyfully and using his lips to declare his praise. When your life is over like David, then you can go to heaven. It's the heart that says, Lord, speak, and your servant hears. It says, here am I, send me. When understood, the Lord is my helper, and it lives out my God and my King. Thankfully, the, the king, the judge, is also our father. And so no matter what a child of God has done, no matter what you have become, no matter what other people know about you, if you're willing, if you're willing to come to God, if you're willing to admit your sins, if you're willing to repent heartbroken, David knows the judge pleads based on his character and according to his loving kindness and according to his grace and mercy, he will forgive and he will restore. Finishing up this material, I began to wonder about David. I wonder, as much as we know about David leading up to these events, as faithful as he was, as committed and as confident as he was, as giving and servant, as right with God as he was, do you think that David appreciated his salvation and walk with God more after his restoration or before it? Just can't help to think that the second half of David's life was one lived in great appreciation for his God his father. Friends, may the second half of our lives be as committed and full, thankful for the grace and goodness of God. And if you need to be restored, my friends, come to God because he will have you. So many of God's children have not simply wandered away. They have unfortunately stayed away. You know, just maybe this might be a good opportunity for us to think about a few of them, see if we can't reach out to them, and encourage them to come home to their father. If you're not a Christian tonight, we'd invite you to become one, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to change your heart and your mind and to repent, to confess that Jesus is who he claimed to be, to say literally the same thing he said, and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, if you've never done that, you need to. 
But if you have, if you have, maybe like David, you've had a fall. Maybe you've gotten caught up in sin. I do want you to know that despite what you might think and despite what we may or may not do, it's not us. It's God you need to come home to. And God is so willing to have you back. We just plead with you, pray for you. And if there's anything we can do to help you come back and be restored to God, we pray that you will. If there's anything we can do, we invite as we stand and as we sing.